Aren't you thankful that the Lord is a shield? Yes. Lifter of your head? Yes. Some people may think, oh, I don't need a shield. Well, just you wait. <laughs> One day you will. And I'm thankful that the Lord is the shield for us. Believing the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to teach us about the Son of God. I want you to open up to the glorious Gospel of Luke, the seventh chapter. We're going to look at five verses this morning. I want to talk to you about moving from fear to faith. And uh, uh, we're going to find someone here in the Bible that's really wrestling with some doubts and some fear. And it's not quite who you would anticipate it to be. The title overall for the sermon is A Word to the Discouraged. So I don't know if you're discouraged here. I don't know what life is like this past week, but this is a word for the discouraged. If it's not been a discouraging week for you, just take the notes and hold on to it for a later date because it'll come around the past. That's, we're all either headed to trouble, in trouble, or coming out of trouble. That's just the way the world the way the world works until we're delivered ultimately in Christ from all trouble for all time. I, I'm, I love lists. You ever see a list and you just got to know the whole, the whole list, a top 10 list? I don't even care what it's about. If I see a top 10 list, I have to read through it. And I read this list this week. It's, it's the top 10 irrational fears. They're only irrational if you don't have them, by the way. So here was a list of the top 10 irrational fears that that people have, and particularly, I believe it was a a, a survey done of of Americans. Number 10, the irrational fear is being in a crowd. So we don't have to worry about that. They're not here, right? The the irrational fear of a crowd, they didn't even come this morning. If you have an irrational fear of crowds, you don't go to the fair, right? You say, have you been to the fair? No, you might not articulate it this way, but you'd say, I don't really like the crowds. By the way, I've not been to the fair. You want to know why? I don't really like crowds. That's why I stand all the way back up here, right? No. All right, we got to go through them quickly. No, number, number 10, number 10, being in a crowd. Number, not, number nine, lightning or thunderstorms. I went through a season of my life when I was a child. I was scared to death. My mom can remember picking me up from school because there was a 20% chance of rain, right? <laughs> lightning. Number eight, just a fear of water. Or maybe if you're not a good swimmer or you had... A stressful incident earlier in life. You're just fearful of water. You don't like to get in the water. You're not going to get on a boat. Number seven, kind of a catch-all, blood, injury, and injections. This is, you know, that covers a lot of ground there, but you don't like to get shots. You don't like the sight of blood. Number six, flying. Not an irrational fear, by the way. Number five, claustrophobia. Also not irrational if you've been stuck in an enclosed space for 13 and a half hours one time in your life. Number four, agoraphobia. That's just the fear of open spaces. It's really closely associated with the fear of crowds. You just don't like open spaces, a big field. It just makes you nervous. Number three, fear of heights. Did you know 20% of adults in America say that they have a fear of heights? And it reaches certain levels. It's called acrophobia. Can can, uh, trigger panic attacks. The last two, you ready? Top two. Number two is, again, a catch-all, animal fears. You're just afraid of... An insect or an animal, whether it's dogs or spiders or snakes. Some of you looking at me, you want me to move on because you have those fears. You know what the number one fear is? Is of people. Isn't that funny? Particularly speaking in front of them. So uh, I had to get over that or I was going to have a hard life. I would be very fearful if I did have to stand in front of you this morning and say anything other than what this is what the word of God says. So I want to pray with you, and we're going to talk about not those fears, not those fears, but this fear. Is this really true? Is it really true? Is Jesus really him? Do you ever have a fear that maybe he's not? 
You ever have a fear or just some doubts, discouragement? I don't know if this is true. Well, we're going to read about somebody in Luke 7, verse 18 to 23, that that was his fear, that was his season of discouragement. So we'll pray and then study the Word of God this morning. Father, help us, help us, help us by your grace, by your Word. Encourage our hearts. Encourage the discouraged. Be the lifter of our heads. A shield for us. And Father, if there are those this, this morning that are discouraged and even doubtful, even fearful, that all these things we talk about, all these things that, that we've said are true about Jesus, about your word, about the, about the church, about the gospel, about salvation, about the cross, about the resurrection... Well, the Apostle Paul himself says, if they're not true, then we are of all men most to be pitied. So, Father, I pray that you'd encourage our hearts by, by your Spirit. Open our eyes. Give us confidence. Luke said he wrote his gospel that we might have confidence in the things we have been taught to believe. I pray that you would use the stated purpose of his book and his gospel for that purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of two things is going to rule your life, fear or faith, and they're mutually incompatible. A heart that's full of fear cannot be a heart that's full of faith. A heart that's full of faith cannot be a heart that's full of fear. As a pastor, there are two really, that I see, I see two very dangerous things that can worm their ways into the hearts of people, and they disrupt everything. They are fear and bitterness. Bitterness is thinking that God somehow got it wrong. Fear is thinking that somehow God will not get it right. Are either of those things lodged into your heart this morning? Either you look in the past and say at some point, in some decision, in some circumstance, God didn't get it right and it has resulted in bitterness in your life and it affects your marriage, it affects your job, it affects your whole outlook in life that you're just full of bitterness. Well, here's what the Bible says about it. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor be put away from you. That's how dangerous it is. It's toxic. And then there's fear. Fear is looking into the future and thinking, I don't think that God's going to handle it. I don't think that God's going to, to, to get it right. And the remedy for both of those things is a simple thing that's taught over and over and over again in the Bible. It's called faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So I want to talk to you just for a few moments about, about fear. Are you a worrier by nature? You know what? I like to think of myself as somebody who's pretty calm under pressure. But something happened not long ago that um, <laughs> exposed that fallacy in my own life. I, I, I like to think of myself as, as uh, when, when, when times are stressful, I can stay even keel. When anxiety is present, that I can keep it together. But a few uh, Saturday mornings ago, we were at the house and playing with the children. And Julie was making just a cup of coffee. And I still don't quite know how this happened, but she, she, I should have brought the canister with me because I have a hard time describing it, but is a canister, did it have sugar in it? Is that what was, we were going for, sugar? And, and it's got this plastic top and, and, and then this kind of clip, seal. I know I'm not doing a good job explaining it, but the, the point of the matter is Julie went to turn it and got the skin of her hand wedged deep in the, 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 the yeah, I'm not doing a good job with this, um, of the jar and her hand was stuck like really stuck and she, it was it was painful and so she started doing what most people who have their skin of their hand being pulled off from the bone she started kind of screaming I mean not like a full-on because the three children were there but then when the children realized what was going on they got upset 
And I would like to be able to say that I was calm, cool, collected, but I kind of wigged out a little bit. I'm just kind of <laughs> confessing to you, just straight, straight up truth. I, I, I didn't handle it well. The children, they're, they're their anxiety kind of keyed me up because I was trying to handle them and and I did not do it in a very gracious way saying it's going to all be all right I was like y'all just get upstairs and stop screaming and then I started and I was and Julie's hands wedged in there and I started to pull on it and I basically said here's my plan I'm going to go get the hammer and smack the thing release the skin and she said please don't do that and it went on for for a long period of time and what I learned is even those who like to think that they're calm under pressure just given the right stressors just given the right set of circumstances, there's nobody in the room who would not crack under the pressure. Now, some of us guys especially uh, like to think we're stoic and we can handle it. It's just a matter of the right stressor coming along in your life. We're about to read about somebody, and if you would have made a list, a top ten list, of somebody who would always be courageous, would never be prone to fear or doubt or discouragement. You would put this man at the top of the list. But you're going to read right now, here's a guy that because the stressors were the right stressors, he's beginning to question if this whole Jesus thing is even true. Luke 7, verse 18. The disciples of John. Now, that's John the Baptist the forerunner of Jesus, reported all these things to him. What, what things? These miraculous healings we've studied the last two weeks, the, the healing of the paralytic and then the healing of the, of, the, of, of the widow's son, raising him to life. John, the, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Isn't that fascinating? John is the one who declared he is the one to come. Remember? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's one coming that I'm not even worthy to untie or tie the straps of his sandals. He must increase. I must decrease. Those are all the things that John has said. About a year ago this time, we were studying the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And do you remember the scene? When Mary walks into the room, John's mom, Elizabeth, who is John's in the womb, the Bible says John was filled with the Holy Spirit and leaped from joy. This is a man who's literally proclaimed Jesus from the womb all through his life. And yet he, of all people, his declaration has become a question. Has that ever happened in your life? Someone who boldly declared Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. And, and then he comes to a point in his life when he says, Are you him? Look, this is his question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you surprised? Are you surprised that John the Baptist has doubts? Have you ever been through a season of doubt in your life? I have. Freshman year of college. Pretty familiar story. I was raised up in the church. I wasn't here every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I was here every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and Tuesday night. My Bible highlighted from one end to the other. And then I got my freshman year of college. And, and uh, professors and other sources of, of, of criticism. And, and it's not an unhealthy thing to have your faith examined. Faith that honors God is not a faith that's never questioned. It's not some ideal, oh, I just have faith. No, I believe in things because they're true. 
because they happened. Not just some sort of willy-nilly, yes, I believe. That's why Luke wrote this entire book, by the way, so that you can have confidence in what you have been taught. But John does an interesting thing, and, and if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to jot this down. John does a particular thing with his doubts and with his fears. He takes them to Jesus. Look at what he says. He sent them to the Lord. Send them to the Lord. Okay? He's going to send messengers to the Lord. So when you're having fears and doubts, the worst thing you can do is close this book. All right? You want to open it up, take your fears and doubts. God's big enough to handle them, okay? Whatever doubts, fears, questions you've got, God's big enough. He's not afraid of your questions. Just don't be afraid of his answers, right? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Let me just give you briefly some contributing factors to John's season of doubt. What was going on in his life that resulted in him questioning everything? I mean, he's questioning everything at this point, isn't he? Are you even the one that's to come? So, first of all, he's separated from other believers. He's cut off. Where is John at this point? He's in prison. He's in in Herod, that wicked, ungodly, hateful, unrighteous governor Herod he's in Herod's palace and the reason John is in Herod's palace is John had the audacity to say Herod you've got some significant sin issues in your life that you need to repent of and Herod didn't take kindly to John telling him what to do it's not a new thing for people to say who are you to tell me what I should do all right that wasn't invented in the 21st century it goes all the way back to the fall Anybody who has the issue of pride in their life, when someone exposes sin in their life, they're always going to say, no, 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 who are you to tell? Who are you to tell? Who are you to tell me? So, so John imprisoned him, and he's locked up and unable to spend much time around other believers. It was years ago when I was sitting in a Sunday school class in Memphis, Tennessee. Someone used this illustration. I've just never forgotten it. He said believers can be compared to charcoal in a charcoal fire, meaning do you, do you like charcoal fires, by the way, like grilling out and so on and so forth? Well, that's always dangerous to talk about food at this time on a Sunday. So moving on. But you get your grill out or you get your, your, your uh, little place out and you put the charcoal and you light the charcoal. And the charcoal starts burning and all the pieces get, get together and, and they're all warm. But if you take one piece of the charcoal out of the charcoal fire and separate it from all the other pieces of charcoal over the course of time, what happens? It cools off. At first, it's still kind of burning a little bit, but then it gets off by itself and it just cools off. And that's an illustration of the church as believers. We need to be together. We have to stir one another up. Do you know how many times the phrase one another is used in the New Testament? Well, I should have known the answer before I brought the question up. The answer is a lot. Over and over, love one another, serve one another, put one another first, bear one another's burdens. There's at least four. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's why one of the, one of the important ministries of the church is shut-in visitation. And some of you do it, and it's a, it's, it's, it's a vital ministry to go to those who are cut off, to those, to those who cannot physically be here to worship with us, to study the Word of God with us, to sing the songs, to give, to, 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 to do all the things that we do together as a church family. Because when you're cut off and by yourself, the fear creeps in. 
the discouragement creeps in. The doubts begin to creep in. So one, John is separated from other believers. He's been part of a vital, thriving ministry, preaching the gospel, and now he's isolated and alone. Whoever isolates himself destroys himself, the book of Proverbs says. So here's the pattern. I'm not making church attendance some sort of legalistic obligation. I'm giving you a spiritual principle. When you get up on a Sunday morning and you say something like, I don't really feel like going today, that's especially the day that you should go. So you don't feel like going this Sunday, guess what you're going to feel like next Sunday? You're not going to feel like going next Sunday either. You're just going to say, I don't really feel like going today either. It's, the gather- it's not church attendance, it's the gathering of the body together to pray for each other, to encourage each other, to love each other. But John's cut off. He's cut off from being stirred up. And that's perhaps one of the reasons of contributing factors for his doubts. A second contributing factor is the wicked seem to be prospering. He's not just in prison. He's in prison in Herod's castle. You know anything about Herod? Herod's a wicked man. Herod is the one who will ultimately have John the Baptist's head beheaded at this sinful, ungodly party that John throws. And it's just straight out of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you know the story. The, the young woman dances, a crude dance. And Herod makes a promise, whatever you want, I'll give it. And then it's her mom that John has been telling Herod is an inappropriate relationship that he needs to repent of. And the mom says, give me John the Baptist's head. The wicked seem to be prospering. When the wicked prosper, it can bring doubt. When haters of God and holiness flaunt their ridicule of him and his ways and nothing seems to happen, it creates doubt. Does that ever happen? You say, it seems like the, the, the people who are succeeding most in life are the ones who cast aside his principles. I mean, if you try to be honest in business, it doesn't seem to get you ahead, right? Have you ever thought of this? Ever had these doubts? The most famous people on all the magazines, they don't care anything about Christ. It happens a lot in our day. Those who flaunt God in his way seem to prosper, seem to get a lot of media attention. In some cases, become famous, and there seems, seems to be no consequence. And the key word is, seems to be no consequence because let's all talk about a bible truth the greatest thing in life is knowing god if you're a believer in jesus i think you would say amen to that there's it's it's it's, nothing can compete with it no ball game no shopping center no vacation no amount of money could replace you you would not sacrifice if you're a believer in christ and his spirit dwells in you you would not say i'll trade that for anything in the world right amen So here's the consequence. They don't have that. They don't have that. Let this encourage, and I don't mean that in some sort of nanny boo boo sort of way. You know what I'm saying? Not to swell us up with pride, but we got this. No, no, no. Paul weeps about these sorts of things. Paul spent his whole life proclaiming the gospel, but sometimes when the wicked seem to prosper, But let me put it this way. Who would you rather be right here, right now? Herod, who imprisoned John, or John, who was imprisoned by Herod? Who would you take being today, right now? But sometimes when the wicked seem to prosper, it leads to doubt and discouragement. Third, third issue were the popular notions and opinions about Jesus in John's own day. Uh, I think it's right here. Look, Uh, look what it says in Luke chapter 7 verse 16 this is after Jesus raises a young man from the dead the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother fear seized them all and they glorify God saying a great prophet 
has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. What was the report? A great prophet. When Jesus talks to his disciples in Caesarea Philippi and says, who do people say that I am? You know what they say? Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the great prophets. And the popular opinion about Jesus in his own day was, sure, he's a great prophet, but he's not the one who is to come. And so the popular notions perhaps get back to John. And because here's what the majority thinks, it begins to perhaps play with John's mind. And that's just conjecture. We know John's doubting. We're just trying to get to the bottom of what was going on that caused John to doubt. Well, he's cut off from believers. The wicked around him are prospering. I mean, he hears the parties night after night after night, the music night after night after night. And now popular opinions about Jesus are that he's just one of the other prophets. And then fourth and perhaps most significant is that John is enduring a season of great personal suffering. The crowds are gone. They're not lining up anymore to hear John preach. He's performed his function. He was to prepare for the one who's to come, and now the one who is to come has come. He's the forerunner, and now the runner has come. And perhaps when you go through a season of significant personal suffering, one of the things that creeps in is, (laughs) is he the one, or should we be waiting for another? John is imprisoned because of his stand for righteousness and holiness. That's a pretty significant double whammy, isn't it? He's not in prison because he committed a crime. He's in prison because he declared the gospel. And may we not forget that there are many people around the world today who are in the very same circumstance and situation. This is always a difficult reality to grasp. John had obeyed God. John had ministered to God. John had boldly proclaimed Jesus. And the result? Prison. Let me articulate it a little bit different. The temporary result? Prison. But I'll tell you this, today John's not in prison. Amen? John John is not shackled up, cut off from other believers. John is liberated with believers and with the Savior for forevermore. But for a season, things had turned out differently than he had expected. And perhaps that's happened to you in your marriage, with your family, with your children, with your health, with your career. This isn't the way that you thought it was going to go. And then it went this way and suffering has resulted. John had his doubts. But he did the best thing that you can do with his doubts or with your doubts. He took them to to Jesus. So I want you to hold your spot in Luke chapter 7 because we're going to get back to Jesus' response. By the way, by the way, Jesus is not offended when John asks that question. Jesus does not say, why don't you go back and tell John to get his act together? I mean, he's the forerunner for crying out loud of all people who shouldn't be doubting me. It should be. That's not how Jesus handles it. Did you know that Jesus, as the, uh, as the prophet Isaiah said, he, he, a bruised reed he will not break. He's talking about how patient and kind and merciful he is. But we'll get back to Jesus' response in a minute. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Just going to look at a, a three verses there real quick. Hebrews chapter 11. We're talking about faith. And if you're going to talk about faith from the Bible, you're going to have to go to Hebrews 11. So if we're going to combat fear with faith, we've got to understand what faith is. Faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is not a spirit of optimism. So what is faith? Now, let's get the Bible's definition. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 1. Now faith is. Okay, so here's the definition. What is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Say, okay, well, what does that mean? Faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is the assurance. See that word? Assurance of things hoped for. Now, let me just give a quick word of clarification. When the Bible uses the word hope, it's not used in the Greek New Testament the way that we use it. Like, I hope it's not raining tomorrow. I hope I get such and such for Christmas. I hope, you know, the Tar Heels and the Wolfpack win a football game at some point. Uh, that, that's not the assurance of things, okay? That's hoping for something that may or may not happen. That's not the way the Bible uses the word hope. The Bible uses the word hope interchangeable with the word assurance. In other words, it's going to happen. Our heart is set on the hope of heaven. Not wishful thinking, but assurance. So let me just, here's the way that, that I wrote it down. From Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is believing God is. Isn't that what it says? By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Faith is believing God is. Faith is believing that God is who he says he is. Faith is believing that he is all he says he is. And that he will always be all that he says he is. Was that too wordy? (laughs) Faith is believing that God is. Faith is believing that God is all that he says that he is. And that he's always all that he says that he is. And he will always be all that he already told you that he already is. Now, that's biblical faith. Everybody, everybody has a grid of faith. I was, uh, I was talking to a, to a guy not too long ago, and here's his faith. I was talking and talking about a few things, and, and um, he said, I, I believe when I put my hands like this and draw them into myself, my fingers are making an unbroken chain. Oh, it just broke it, so it, no, but anyway. And when I bring them in, I feel the divine energy, and that enters into my soul. I said, I believe in Jesus. <laughs> Too frequently, a believer in Jesus is made out to be the one who's completely and totally off the rocker. Now, now, now here's just a, a witnessing um, <laughs> a tool, if that's the right word. As you share your faith, ask them what their faith is. Everybody has a grid of faith. Everybody does. What do you believe? Here's an interesting note, notion, by the way. Note, most people who most harshly criticize Christians themselves can't articulate what they actually believe. It's just an armchair theologian quarterback, you know what I mean? It's going to sit on the sidelines and criticize. It's fine. They can tear down what you believe. Be ready. Be always ready to give an answer for the hope that which you have. But allow them the same opportunity. Okay, well, what do you believe? And you'll get the craziest things and energy. And, and when I speak, when I say it, I really believe it and it's going to happen. I believe in Jesus. I believe that I was born dead in my sins. I believe that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. He really was crucified for my sins. And he really did come up out of the grave. That's what I believe. Faith is the assurance of things that aren't seen. We walk by faith, not by sight. The most uh, well-known critic of Christianity is an author named Richard Dawkins. He's an extremely intelligent man. And he's from Britain, so he's got the British accent, which always lends itself to some sort of authority, you know. If you can say it in a British accent, it just sounds more convincing. He's written all sorts of books. You can get his perspective from the titles of the books, The God Delusion. 
And I once saw an interview where he was finally kind of cornered in what we're talking about. And here's the criticism, criticism, criticism. What do you believe? How did we get here? And here was his response. I think perhaps aliens from a more advanced world came and began life here on earth. And that's a, that's a modicum of faith, right? Everybody has a grid of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, but which are not seen. So a uh, couple of examples of this, and then how to move, how to we'll conclude with how to move from fear to faith. Back in Luke chapter 7. You remember in the Old Testament when they, when they were going to inherit the promised land, they were there. The 12 spies went out. God had said, here's the land. We're going to go take it. Ten of the spies came back, and they said, we can't do it, right? They went by what they could see. Now, this is the same people that had walked across dry land on the Red Sea, right? But they got to this, there's giants in the land, we can't go. And then two, two guys stood up and said, I think we can take it. God's promise to Joshua and Caleb. You remember that? They remembered what God had said, and they rooted themselves in the word of God. And there I just gave you your one-two punch on combating fear. Remember what God said and root yourself in his word. Remember, remember, remember. So, so let's, look at, uh, let's look at Luke 7. They come with the question, in that hour, verse 21, Luke 7, 21, in that hour the messengers come from John, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. You know what a witness is? Someone who just shares what they've seen and heard. Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their, spot, their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Here's how you combat faith. One, you remember what God has done. Here's what, here, here's what Jesus tells him. Again, don't you love his patience? John comes and says, hey, are you the one who's to come? Again, John had been his, 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 his biggest cheerleader. And yet Jesus says, I'll tell you what you do with John. You go and tell him what you've seen and what you've heard. You remember two pages ago? The dead have come back. (laughs) The the paralyzed are being healed. And in in that very hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues. Now, in that very hour, Jesus is doing miraculous works. The problem is John's not there to see it for himself. And that's what leads to doubt. That's what leads to fear. Can I tell you what Jesus is doing right now? Jesus, right now, all around the world, the blind are receiving their sight, the lame are walking, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Spiritually speaking, that's what Jesus is doing right now. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. He changes, he changes not. Remember what God is doing and then root yourself in the word of God. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Now, We're not going to have two guys walk in the back door and tell us those things. But here's what the servants of God have given you, his word. Now, this is where you see and hear what God is doing. Amen? So if you want to know, if you want to know what God's up to, you get this book out. And it requires some things like uh, get your remote and cut the TV off and get a loan, get a notebook out, open this book up and read and say, God, I have doubts. I have fears. I don't know if it's all going to work out, but I want you to, uh, to teach me from your word. Now, let me give you a real clear uh, application 
when you begin to walk in faith, it doesn't mean that there are not difficult days ahead. What's the end game on earth for John? These witnesses are going to come back. You, you, you know, if, if it was up to us, if we were writing this story, we would write it this way. Jesus heard that John was having doubts, and Jesus said, oh, where's John? Oh, he's in prison. He'd get those disciples, and they'd go storm that palace, right? They'd break the wall down. They'd, they, they'd liberate uh, uh, John the Baptist. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger would play one, and Sylvester Stallone the other, and the, the guns flying, and they crash out of there and then they get on their horses and they gallop off into the sunset like indiana jones and his dad at the end of indiana jones and the last crusade hadn't talked about him for a while so just wanted you to remember i still know about him that's how we would write the story right john's having doubts john's having fear let's go rescue him and jesus doesn't or does he does jesus leave from there to go and rescue john you better believe it because john does not need jesus to go to herod's palace to rescue him john needs jesus to go to jerusalem to rescue him to go to calvary to rescue him to go into that tomb to rescue him and to come up out of that tomb to rescue him And that is how John has been rescued. And that's how, if you've been rescued, you've been rescued. And it's about faith. Do you believe that's what Jesus has done? I stand here. My confession to you is, I believe he's done it. Now, they might still cut my head off at some point. Might happen. It's what happened to John. But had John been rescued? Do not fear him who can destroy your body. Fear him who can destroy body and soul in hell forever. That's what the scriptures say. Jesus rescued John, not so much from unholy Herod, as much as from holy God. And that's who you need a shield to protect you from. I'm going to give you a concluding illustration. In just a moment, I'm going to put a picture up on the screen that's going to help me maybe give you a word picture. I tend to be a little bit of a visual learner. In just a moment, I'm going to put something on the screen. As soon as it goes on the screen, you're going to know exactly what it is. Some of you have been there. Some of you have seen it for yourself. Some of you have even been right where it is. It opened in 1937, and according to the American Society of Civil Engineers, so it sounds really official, it is one of the wonders of the modern world. It is 4,200 feet long, and it is the most photographed bridge in all the world. So let's take a look at it. There it is. You see it? You know what it is, right? Anybody ever been there? Ever seen it? The Golden Gate Bridge, right, in San Francisco. you got to admit, it's spectacular, isn't it? There's a reason it's the most photographed bridge in the world. It's awesome, isn't it? Uh, Thousands of people go across that bridge on a daily basis. All right, I want to show you a second picture real fast. Same bridge, right? Do you know what? Still 4,200 feet long. Still there. But San Francisco's got this uh, weather issue, a whole lot of fog there. It still spans the exact same divide. It just can't be seen as clearly. And you know what had happened to John the Baptist? It may happen to you, may be happening to you right now. There'd been a day when he saw Jesus like the first slide, clear as a bell, no cloud in the sky. Behold, there he is, the Lamb of God who took away, who's taking away the sin of the world. And then he got imprisoned. 
Then he got separated from the other believers. Then all this popular notion is that, oh, Jesus, yeah, he's great, but he's just another prophet. And the clouds started forming. It's okay to confess and say, I can't see him. That's a different statement from he's not there. You know what I'm saying? It's okay to walk out in San Francisco and say, ah, I can't see that old Golden Gate Bridge. But it'd be crazy just because the clouds rolled in for someone to say, who took the Golden Gate Bridge away? Who stole it overnight? Who tore it down? Where did they take my bridge? There's seasons of your life, valley of the shadow of death, difficulty, so on and so forth, <laughs> where you say, I just can't see him like I, like I used to. Yeah, I'm not seeing him as clearly today as I have seen him in the past. But he's still there. Nothing's happened to the bridge, right, in the picture. It's not been altered one iota. Faith is the assurance of things not seen. Faith is not groundless. It's not optimism. It's simply believing that God is, that He's all that He says He is, that He's always going to be all that He says He is, even when the clouds of fear and doubt start swirling. I'm going to give you a Bible verse. We're going to do a memory verse today, all right? Because this is going to happen in your life. Clouds are going to come in. So we're going to memorize this verse together as a church family this week. Because you want to go by what His Word says, not, what by, not by what your eyes see. Amen? We want to walk by faith, not by sight. We will be a people who say, I can't quite see the bridge. We're not going to be people who say, the bridge must be out. The bridge, the cross, the gospel, it's never going out. The Golden Gate Bridge, at some point, it's all going to burn up. But the gospel is always going to be the eternal bridge between us and God. So here's our verse. Fear not, for I am with you. Over and over in the Bible, you get these thoughts together. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? What's he say? You're with me. You're with me. The bridge is there, right? Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. John the Baptist had doubts, and he did the right thing with them. I'm asking you, church family, get this verse, mark it down in your Bible at some point next week. We're going to get together. We're going to say it together. We're going to pray it together. This is, you want to get roots. You want to be rooted in his word. And this is a good root, right? John the Baptist had doubts. He did the right thing with them. He took them to Jesus. He had doubts because he was in the midst of the hardest season of his life. And he sent word to Jesus. And Jesus did not respond with a harsh lecture about how John should never doubt. He responded with, go and tell him what you have seen and heard. If you'll come to Jesus, see clearly what he has done, is doing, and will do, and trust that he is an unshakable bridge, you can move from fear of the unknown to faith in the one who knows everything. And I don't mean that as some kind of cute cliche to end the sermon with. I believe it's true. I'm going to ask you to stand. And we're going to pray together. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. We'll do our invitation just a little bit differently. An invitation for us, for us as a church family is just a time for us to respond 
We believe that worship and the study of God's Word is not a spectator sport. It's something that we participate in. And so in just a moment, we're going to have a a public invitation. We have a public invitation every week because our aim is to proclaim the Word of God every week, and we believe it's appropriate when the Word of God is proclaimed is to invite people to respond, to respond in faith. Say, I've never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've never believed He's the bridge that can divide the separation between myself and God. That He has rescued me, not by liberating me from prison, but from liberating me from sin. Others of us here this morning, you are a believer in Jesus, but you would just say, I'm having a season of my life right now where I'm just, I'm just wrestling with some fears. And what I want you to know is it's okay to confess that. And so just in for a few, just a few brief moments, you don't have to do this, but sometimes it just helps. You know how John, he had two witnesses or two messengers he shared his fears with. You just say, Pastor Brandon, I'm having some, a season of just really wrestling with some things, and I want you to know about it. Would you just look at me? Every, we're going to have our heads bowed. You just say, just, here's some things going on in my life. Just really wrestling with some things. You just look at me. And I see you. Yep. 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 Yes. 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 Yes, 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 yeah, just got some stuff, yeah. Well, you're in the company of John the Baptist and Moses, Abraham, Peter, we could go on and on. My encouragement to you is take them to Jesus. Take them straight to Jesus. He's not going to lecture you. He's not going (laughs) to sternly rebuke you. He's your faithful shepherd. He's given his life upon the cross for you. He shed his blood for you. My encouragement to you is, just back to our word picture, the bridge is not out. The bridge is secure. God is who he says he is. I will never leave you or forsake you. He is all that he says he is, holy, just, righteous, kind, compassionate, forgiving. He's always all that he says he is, and he always will be. So, Father, for those in a season where the bridge is not as easily discernible as perhaps in another season of life, Father, I pray your grace would be sufficient for them. There will be a day when the clouds are gone. We'll walk by sight and not by faith. When our faith becomes sight, But until that day, you've said it's impossible to please you without faith. So we want to please you. We want to believe you and trust you. But sometimes the things that we see make it difficult for us to believe. And so, Father, help us to see and hear what Jesus is doing. The lame walk. The blind see. The dead are alive again you ever live to make intercession for us. Use this time of invitation and response to declare things to us that are true. Help us to be rooted in the word of God so that when the fears start speaking to us, we have something to say back. And it's your word. In Jesus' name, amen.